0: Beloved, the uh, beautiful hymn, among the beautiful hymns that we uh, just sang, is great is thy faithfulness. The first words, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassion they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be." Now, we sing those words, and as Gary always shepherds us, we need to believe those words and own those words. But the question is, how do we know that's true? Do we know that's true because of a uh, burning in our bosom when we hear it? Do we know it's true because that's what our parents taught us, and therefore that must make it true? Is it because that's the general consensus of the population that it's true? We know that that's not the general consensus, but even if it was... Would that be why we would think that it's true? Is it merely because I believe it, therefore that's what makes it true for me? No. The reason that we know those truths, the reason we believe those words is because God tells us those words, because God has revealed them to us. Beloved, please take your Bible in your hand if you haven't already. Um, If you've traveled, you might have come across in a particular hotel chain uh, the Gideon Bible in the drawer next to the bed. And many people have been saved through Gideon Bibles that they found in hotel rooms. One of the aspects I love about the Bible that is in those rooms is what is inside the Gideon Bible. These are the words that are inside the Gideon Bible. It says, the Bible contains the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are bindings, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. The opening introduction continues, it's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here too, heaven is open and the gates of hell are closed. Christ is its grand subject. Our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It's a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It's given you in life, it will be open at judgment and be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. End quote. Another great statement was made by a 19th century Scottish preacher, Thomas Guthrie. He said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a bomb for every wound. Rob us of our Bible and our sky has lost its sun." Well, beloved, now please open the Bible that's in your hand to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. As we are getting towards the end of our expositional journey through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, through this epistle to the Ephesians, we find ourselves towards the end of the letter in chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, where Paul describes the war we wage and the armor we wear. He has told us and will tell us, I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. Our verse this morning is actually half a verse. It's the sixth and final piece of the armor at the end of verse 17. I'm going to read verses 10 through 17, and we will see, if we haven't heard already, that Paul in verse 12 tells us, that this war that we wage is not a physical battle against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle against the devil, against rulers and powers and the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And when we think of the enemy whom we are fighting, we should understand that his tactics, his strategy hasn't changed as it's gone through the channels of time all the way from the Garden of Eden. The fundamental element, the fundamental tactic that the enemy brings towards us is to compromise the word And this is why, beloved, we need for this spiritual combat in which we are engaged. We need God-forged, God-furnished armor. Beloved, listen as I read verses 10 through 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, Paul writes, "...be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil." For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. "...and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." And beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. So the belt of truth, our firmness, our security, our strength, our mobility that we have by virtue of girding ourselves with the truth of the word of God. The breastplate of righteousness, the practical righteousness, which is protection uh, for us when Lust and opportunity coincide on the evil day when the enemy comes forward with his lies and accusations and temptations. Our shoes of readiness, so that we can stand securely and move quickly, armed with the good news, the gospel of peace. And our shield of faith, which protects the army of God and extinguishes the fires of the enemy. This is our God-given ability to quickly apply what we believe, what we believe from God's word, from what God has told us, from what God has revealed us. Our helmet of salvation, the salvation we've already received and the salvation we confidently expect on the day when we will be ushered into eternity. This helmet instills fear in the heart of our foes and inspires confidence in the heart of our friends. Those are the first five pieces of the armor of God. Now we come to the sixth and final piece of the armor of God, of the God-forged, God-furnished armor, and it's actually the only weapon, the only element of the armor, the only element of the equipment that God equips us with and furnishes us that is an offensive weapon, as well as a defensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones made this observation about this last piece of equipment. He said, every other part that we've been looking at provides a protection for the body as a whole or particular parts of the body. But this isn't true of the sword of the spirit. It's both defensive and offensive. It's not merely to repel and resist the enemy, but it is to be used to make the enemy and to force the enemy to retreat. I Remember taking a, uh, and when I was in Southern California in seminary training in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I took a seminary friend of mine, Chris, to the Hicks and Gracie Jiu Jitsu School that I was training at. And the instructor had his brother, who was kind of his assistant, take Chris, because Chris was a newbie, and take him off, you know, to give him some one on one instruction. And his brother, the instructor's brother, the assistant, said to Chris, Well, what's your, let's start with, what's your fighting stance? Chris thought about it and said, Well, when my wife and I are in a disagreement, I usually do something like this. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he, he didn't have any kind of fighting style. I mean, on, on a side note, I think he did enjoy the class, although he did have to excuse himself midway through the class to go out and deposit a spaghetti dinner in the parking lot. But I do think he enjoyed himself. Beloved, the point here is this. We need to be prepared to fight. We need to know how fight we need to know how to use the spiritual weapon god gives us god gives you for this spiritual combat and that's why at the end of verse 17 you see and the sword of the spirit and take the command that is there at the beginning of verse 17 this urgent command which ties back into the command the urgent command back in verse 14 at the beginning of the armor When in verse 14, Paul said, stand firm. And then he goes on to list the elements. And then in verse 17, take the next urgent command. Take, by extension, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Beloved, God commands us to be people of the Word. The Word of God that calls us unto salvation and the Word of God that builds us up in salvation the word of God that is used by the holy righteous God to justify us and the word of God that is used by the indwelling Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to grow us in the grace and knowledge of him as our Lord and Savior beloved your Bible is necessary for your coming to faith your Bible our Bible is necessary for our continuing in the faith and More to the point in the context of this particular passage, it is also necessary for contending for the faith. Even as good half brother to Jesus, Jude, told us, tells us in Jude when we went through it here some months back. Beloved, first notice this the word of God, your sword, cuts profoundly. This is its utility, its usefulness. It pierces deeply. We know the physical sword can sever limb from body. The physical sword can pierce into the heart. It can divide even bone from marrow, joint from marrow. But what we have here in verse 17 when he says and the sword, this is a there's two different swords that people would understand in Rome, there was a large, broadsword, the kind of sword that you'd have to hold with two hands. It could be three to four feet in length, and you'd have to swing it like a baseball bat, although skilled swordsmen would have much more agility than that. That's not the kind of sword That Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a smaller sword, a sword that can be anywhere from maybe 8 to 10 inches up to 18 inches. It would be held by one hand, and this was the standard primary weapon of a Roman soldier. The historian Josephus said this kind of sword, this machaira sword, was short enough to chop fruit, but large enough to kill. In to give you an idea, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in the Septuagint, in Genesis 22, when God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice. Uh, to God which of course God prevented him from the time or at the point when he did that but when God commanded Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 6 you read the words that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife it's the same word used here so it's a short sword that the Roman soldier would use for close hand-to-hand combat Um, If you were here as we've been going through the different elements, we understand that being part, we are given these commands individually, but we understand that we are fighting this battle not by ourselves. So at a large scale, this spiritual war is not mano a mano. It's not a one-on-one war. But the individual battle, the individual skirmishes in the context here, your sword fight as a sword man or a sword woman is mono a uh, mono and you and I need to know how to use it beloved your sword cuts profoundly it pierces deeply a companion verse to Genesis 6, verse 17. Here, the second part of it is Hebrews 4, verse 12, where the author of Hebrews writes writes these well-known words. He says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Beloved, the spiritual point of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. And the spiritual point of the author of Hebrews there is that there's nothing so concealed that the sword of the Spirit can't reveal. There's nothing so hidden deeply or hidden so deeply that the Word of God can't uncover and bring to the light of day. That is the point. And beloved, it is the Word of God described as a sword of the Spirit. Steve Lawson, I love what he said. He said, the word of God is a sword that pierces. It's not a q-tip that tickles. No, it's a sword that pierces. Beloved, your Bible spawns conviction and conversion. It gives birth. It engenders conviction and conversion. It brings consolation to the repentant. And it brings condemnation to the unrepentant. It is the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And this sword, it was the same sword given to different soldiers. They may be a little soldier, big soldier, strong, weak, whatever, The same sword was given to the soldier, so also the same sword of the Spirit is given to every child of God. It is suitable for every day, every age, every situation, every man. There's no other book written by man that is like this. There's a 1921 Genesis to Revelation Bible course written by a man named William Groom, and this is what he said about the Bible, he said, these are words written by kings, by emperors, by princes, by poets, sages, philosophers, fishermen, statesmen, by men learned in the wisdom of Egypt, educated in the schools of Babylon, and trained at the feet of rabbis in Jerusalem. This book was written by men in exile, in the desert, in shepherds' tents, in green pastures, and beside still Waters. Among its authors, we find a tax gatherer, a herdsman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. We find poor men, rich men, statesmen, preachers, captains, legislators, judges, and exiles. And he finishes and behind every word is the divine author, God Himself. And yet, it's the same weapon. You have the same weapon that jesus used in the wilderness in his mano a mano combat against the devil you have the same weapon that peter the apostle the leader of the apostles wielded on pentecost some of us here have been saved for a very long time some of us are brand new christians Some among us are very intelligent. Some some of us are very simple. Some of us come from generations of solid believers. Some of us are like a brand plucked from the fire, as a sole believer plucked out of a household and a family and generations of unbelievers. But it's the same sword for every man, for every woman. For any length of time that you've been a believer, it's the same sword. That's why Paul Washer, I love his statement. He said, I don't preach one gospel to one group of people and then another gospel to another group of people because all men are the same. The God I preach is the same and the gospel they need is the same. Beloved, the sword of the Spirit that you have in your hands cuts profoundly. Secondly, your sword that God has given you wields powerfully. So you have the utility of the book and you have the authority and the veracity of the book because it is a book written by men, but it is not a book that is merely written by men. John MacArthur said, we have a sword that is not forged in human anvils or tempered in earthly fires we have a spiritual sword of divine origin beloved here in ephesians 6 verse 17 the sword of the spirit is spirit the sword is spirit originated it's spirit enabled and it's spirit taught your sword wields powerfully because it comes from god himself that's why he says the sword of the spirit Now, just a note here, as we've been going through these pieces of armor, these pieces of equipment, we saw earlier that Paul identified the breastplate as righteousness, the shield as faith, the helmet as salvation. But that's not what he's doing here. He's not identifying the sword as the spirit. He's saying the sword comes from the spirit. The sword is God forged and God furnished. It is God made and God supplied. And in contrast, we know that the helmet and the breastplate from Isaiah 59, I think it was 59, 17, that God himself, Jesus himself, wore the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. So it was God worn those pieces. were. The sword is God wielded. God himself wields the same sword. We even saw the one example of Jesus wielding this sword in the wilderness during his temptation. But Isaiah 49, verse 2, he, this is, again, Christ, this is the second member of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ speaking, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Or Hosea 6, verse 5, God speaking says, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Or, in anticipation of the return of Christ. When Christ will come, not as a lamb to be slain, but as a lion to slay. Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. So, this weapon that God gives you is... God made, God supplied, and God wielded. Beloved, your sword is as strong and as pure as God who made it. Your word is as strong and as pure as God who wrote it. That's why Paul, when writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired. Theop, Nustos. Literally, all scripture is God breathed. God breathed out these words. These words that were written by Paul, they were written by David, they were written by Moses, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the author of Hebrews. They were written by men with their vocabulary, with their background, as king or as peasant or as shepherd, from a palace or from the desert. They were written. These words were written by men, and they were written by God. The authors of Scripture were superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that these words are inspired—not in our kind of normal, kind of watered-down understanding of the word "inspire" or "inspired," but in the original intent, they were God breathed. God breathed. And the same word breath is the same root word even of spirit as well. Beloved, the word of God does the work of God in the child of God by the spirit of God. That's why Paul here says the sword of the spirit. And the Holy Spirit does his work cum verbum, per verbum, but never sine verbum. The Holy Spirit does, hang with me, the Holy Spirit does His work with the Word of God, according to the Word of God, but never separate or apart from the Word of God. And again, that's why it is the sword of the Spirit. And this sword, because it comes from, it's enabled by, it's empowered by the Spirit. It is powerful. It's powerful. Charles Hodge said this, The only offensive weapon of the Christian is the sword of the Spirit. That is, the Word of God. It's that which God has spoken, His Word, the Bible. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the wisdom of God and the power of God. It has a self-evidencing light. It commends itself to reason and to conscience. It has the power not only of truth, but of divine truth. It puts to flight all the powers of darkness. The Christian finds this to be true in his individual experience. It dissipates doubts. It drives away fear. It delivers him from the power of Satan. End quote. Beloved, you know... That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The indwelling Holy Spirit within you is greater than he who is in the world. The devil is fearsome. He is mighty. He is powerful. But he is infinitely less than God who dwells within you. And also what you hold in your hands is also greater than he who is in the world. That is the power of the powerful wielding of the sword that you have at your fingertips when you take the word of God, when you understand the word of God, when you use the word of God. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian church in his second uh, Corinthians letter, chapter 10, verse 3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And what fortresses, Paul, do you mean? Well, he answers in verse 5. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And that's kind of going out from us. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's coming in in on us. So the spiritual war that we fight in the context in Ephesians it's against the devil and his minions, but we also know the greatest battle for an individual Christian is not against the spiritual forces which are real and out there, but against this body of death that we are still trapped in and against the flesh that we wait to be freed from when we enter into God's presence in heaven forever and ever. But in the meantime, We take every thought captive, every accusation, every lie, every temptation. We take and bind it with the fetters of the word of God for our victory and our joy and our worship of God. Beloved, the power is in the word. That's why you won't hear endless personal stories from this pulpit. You won't hear comedy routines from this pulpit. Uh, In the membership class, uh, there was the last membership class, so I went at the end. Like every elder goes at the end of a class, I do the last one, and we're having time of fellowship. And somebody in the class said, you know, I think you're really funny. Um, I think we immediately expelled him from the membership process. But. <laughs> <laughs> Beloved, the awesome responsibility that you have being a swordsman of God, a swordswoman of God, should always humble you but never paralyze you. It should humble, but not paralyze. There's a story in the context of the power of the Word of God. There's a story in the biography of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was uh, one of the greatest preachers, uh, at least in the English language, in 18th century England. Even here in America, he came and preached here as well. About a man named John Thorpe. Uh, John Thorpe was a bitter opponent of Whitfield. He was part of something that was called the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club was a group of upper echelon higher society pagans who absolutely despised Christianity in England and and, in Ireland in the 18th century. They would gather, the thugs would gather in mobs to commit open acts of deliberate public blasphemy. They would meet in private to commit acts of gross immorality and they reveled in all kinds of wickedness. And again, absolutely hated Christianity. And because of that, they hated Whitfield and his preaching. Mockery followed Whitfield everywhere he went. You may not know this, but uh, Whitfield was severely cross eyed, and they would use that. His enemies would mock his physical appearance. Uh, but wherever Whitfield went, these thugs or other people that would mock him, he would accept that. Magnanimously and courageously, and just continue to preach the word of God. And God used the word preached through Whitfield to save countless numbers of souls. But there were these thugs the members of the Hellfire Club that opposed him in one particular case when Whitfield came to the town of Rotherham in central England John Thorpe and his gang of thugs decided to make a burlesque of Whitfield's ministry in a pub at night and they were drinking and laughing and making fun of Whitfield and somebody suggested the idea that they have a contest to see who could do the best job of mocking and imitating Whitefield. And so they drew lots, and four people got lots, or at least stepped forward. Maybe they volunteered, I'm not sure, to do this mocking. John Thorpe was one. In fact, he was the last one. So he heard the first three. And everything was, noth- I should say, nothing was sacred. Everything was blasphemy, foul language, and base immorality. It flowed freely. They were all laughing hysterically. And when Thorpe's turn came, he stood in the center of the pub, crossed his eyes, and then when the laughing died down, began to preach. And what happened was for each of the contestants, they say, okay, well, we'll just take the Bible, we'll open it up, and wherever it falls, you imitate and mock Whitfield by that passage. And when Thorpe's came, turned, the Bible was opened by happenstance, with quotes, to Luke chapter 13, and Thorpe's eyes immediately came down to, verse three, which says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Thorpe began to read the text aloud, fully intending to deliver a message, mocking Whitfield's style with his cross-eyed. But as soon as he read the text aloud, Whitfield's biographer later on wrote about what happened. Thorpe's mind was affected in a very extraordinary manner. The sharpest pangs of conviction now seized him, and conscience denounced tremendous vengeance upon his soul. As he began to preach on that text, the whole pub fell silent. Thorpe said later his mind was filled with sudden insight on the text, and he delivered a full sermon on it, not as mocking, but with genuine gospel passion, end quote. Beloved, the word of God had pierced, John Thorpe's heart. When he finished his sermon, he sat down trembling and broken hearted. And in Whitfield's biographer's words, instead of entertaining the company, that sermon spread a visible depression, and by the time Thorpe finished speaking, there was a sullen gloom upon every countenance. Thorpe himself later testified that he read the text, it gripped his conscience, he believed the gospel, and he gave his heart to Christ right there in that pub. He had meant to taunt and ridicule not just Whitfield, but Christ behind Whitfield. But the power of the Word of God penetrated his soul and cut him to the heart. By the way, the epilogue is he became a powerful preacher and an effective evangelist and even accompanied Whitfield on many of his journeys as well. And in particular, because Thorpe knew the power of the word of God to penetrate hardened hearts. Beloved, the word of God wields powerfully. Your commanding officer has given you your sword. You don't have the option to say, you know what, I think I'm gonna poke them with my butter knife instead of cutting them with my sword. That's not an option. There's a third truth here, beloved. The sword cuts profoundly, it wields powerfully, and it adjudicates precisely. It judges precisely. You can apply it. You must, we must apply it with precision. So <clears throat> we move from the utility and the authority and veracity of the word of God to the perspicuity or the clarity of the word of God the sword of the spirit and then he finishes which is the word of God beloved it has been said rightly that the first and most fundamental way that God showed his love for us and blessed us after creating us Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden was speaking to us The first and most fundamental way that God demonstrated his love for Adam and Eve after creating them was speaking to them. You see, this may be some 6,000 plus years later, but we still don't know God. We can't come to know God by investigation. We need revelation. We need God to speak to us. And God has and does speak to us solely in the pages Scripture that's why God said through Moses in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 man doesn't live by bread alone but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord or Psalm 119 verse 98 your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine again in the context of the spiritual war God your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine now In the context of this precision, there are two aspects in our text that points to this precision. One, we already covered. It's the small makarai sword that is used with the hand that is used more precisely than the big, broad sword. But the second element is the Greek word translated as word here is not the normal word you might think of, the logos. It's the rhema. It's the rhema of God. The rhema focuses on a unique and particular message. The logos is the more comprehensive, overarching word of God. For example, Christ, in John 17, verse 17, in his high priestly prayer, uh, Christ in his humanity said to God the Father, Thy word, thy logos, is truth. But the word here, the Rhema word here, is a definite or particular saying for a definite or particular situation. It's understanding the Bible with all the doctrines and the beauty and the riches, and knowing that we could spend a lifetime of lifetimes studying it and never exhaust its meaning, but understanding it to the level that we can bring it to bear in the appropriate discerning way according to the occasion. For example, In Hebrews 4, verse 12, the word of God is able at the end to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's where I get the adjudicates precisely. It applies precisely, it adjudicates, it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Luke 3, verse 2, we read that the word of God, the rhema of God, came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. John the Baptist had a very, very, very unique and particular message. Or in Matthew 4, verse 4, when Christ was being tempted, Christ knew scripture. And it says, Christ replied to Satan, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, every rhema that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Or Romans 10, verse 17, Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the rhema of God. So it is the particular truths and elements that are wielded and used by us for God's glory and are applied precisely. And there's multiple examples you may have in your salvation. There may be one particular scripture that God used to pierce your heart. We can think of John Thorpe, that story we just read or you can think of spurgeon and spurgeon when he was a 15 year old young man with that simple the way spurgeon said just stupid preacher in that small church who preached on one verse isaiah 45 verse 22 look to me and live or martin luther romans 1 17 the just shall live by faith the righteous man shall live by faith that's a particular word that God used to bring life where there was no life before. There's a Plymouth Brethren missionary and preacher, H.P. Barker, who told a story of the butterfly, the botanist, and the bee. And what... Barker talked about was he was in a garden one day and he looked over and he saw this beautiful butterfly. A beautiful butterfly, he says, that was landing on, it would land on a flower and then flutter to another flower and then to another. And only for a second or two it would sit and it would move on. It would touch as many lovely blossoms as it could but derived absolutely no benefit from it. And then Barker continues the illustrative story. He says, then there came a botanist And the botanist had a big notebook under his arm and a great big magnifying glass. He would lean over a certain flower and look for a long time and then write notes in his notebook. He was there for hours taking notes. Eventually, he closed his notebook, put away them, tucked his magnifying glass in his pocket and walked away. But the third thing that Barker said he noticed was a bee, just a little bee. And the bee would land on a flower and it would sink down deep into the flower and it would extract all the nectar and pollen it could carry. He says the bee went in empty every time and came out full. And then he gives the application. So it is with so many people who approach the Bible. There are those who just flutter from lovely sermon to lovely sermon from class to class, fluttering here, fluttering there, bringing nothing and gaining nothing. What a nice feeling. Then There are the spiritual botanists who take copious notes, who make sure all the vowel pointings are correct, but they don't have the capacity to draw anything out of the flower because it's just pure academics. Then there are the spiritual bees who draw out of every precious flower all that is there to make the honey that makes them so blessed to those around them. Beloved, it is the word of God. Uh, at our men's big breakfast at the beginning of November, Tim was giving his test, or no, actually it was in an elders meeting, I don't know, and it was one of the wonderful meetings I had with Tim, where Tim said that he calculated, was that the men's breakfast? Elders meeting. <laughs> Tim <clears throat> calculated that there are 20 to 25 hours of teaching from the Word of God every week at this church what you hear me doing up here is maybe four or five percent of the total ministry of the word of god coming from some platform at santan bible church our bible hour through the bible is currently in romans our bible hour christian living is right now covering the doctrines of grace. Josh is teaching through Galatians in youth ministry. David and Mike through Ecclesiastes in Crossroads. Chris Southern is in 1 Corinthians in his home group. Uh, Justin Parker's teaching through James. Barry Kutz, First and Second Thessalonians. Kyle through Romans. Lon and Earl's home group are teaching through John. The Men's Midweek Thursday Morning Bible Study, Scott leads us through John. The Generations Outreach, our godly men that go to the Generations Retirement Home in Agritopia, are preaching verse by verse through 1 John right now. Thank you. I had that in my notes. And then Earl, in our wonderful new... uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the, more, wit, the more wise and, and, and more godly, more mature believers. Uh, Earl is leading them through Philippians. You have Brent's Young Married Home Group, Scott's Sermon Review Home Group, Men's Big Breakfast Table Talk, Women's Ministry, Children's Ministry classes, and the list goes on. Beloved, the word of God is powerful, and it adjudicates precisely. We apply it with precision and God will show you how to use it as the occasion demands. Lastly, the word, the sword, cuts profoundly. It wields powerfully. It adjudicates precisely. Lastly, it quickens permanently. It quickens permanently. We move from the utility, the authority, the veracity, the perspicuity and clarity to the vitality of the word of God. This is not a dead letter. This is a living word. It gives life. Beloved, the Word of God is an invasive power. It gets inside of us. The Word of God shines like a spotlight into even the dark recesses of our heart. That's why in Hebrews 4.12, we read earlier in the New American Standard, the Word of God is living and active, or as King Jim would put it, the Word of God is quick and powerful. Beloved, the Bible renews the heart by giving life to the spiritually dead that's why here in Ephesians back in chapter 2 verse 5 Paul says God made us alive together with Christ or again the way the King James would put it God hath quickened us together with Christ that was an old meaning of the English word quicken to give life to to enliven to vivify Beloved, the vitality of the Bible is eternal and abiding. Hence, that's why this sword that you have in your hand quickens permanently is the point. And the beautiful hymn that we sang earlier, And Can It Be, as perhaps if you are doing what we would encourage you to do of... Looking at the devotional guide that was given to you last Sunday, going through the words and making them your own, even coming in here, you come across the stanza, or actually we're going to sing and Can it Be coming up. Thank you. Uh, we, we will come across, we will sing these words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's God's eye diffused a quickening ray into our heart. He's not talking about the speed of light, he's talking about the life giving power and blessing that comes when the light of Scripture pierces into our dark heart. And then at the end of the stanza, these words of application, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Beloved, that is the quickening permanent power of the sword of the Spirit. This weapon forged by God to give life, to heal, to resurrect this is a sword that is life bearing and life giving. And beloved, nobody ever became agile with the sword of the Spirit merely by listening to someone teach it or talk about it. It is only when we wield the sword in the front line of this spiritual battle, whether it's in church, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the family, wherever God has us, when we wield this sword, then we will truly appreciate the rest of the armor. We will appreciate the goining, the girding, holding together of the belt of truth that keeps us secure with understanding that this book contains everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and the faith, the trust, the belief we have in God that protects us and will extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one, and the list goes on. Beloved, may his word be our rule, his spirit our guide, and his glory our goal. Let us be preoccupied with his word so that we can become more preoccupied with the one to whom this word points. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you, God, that You have saved us. You are saving us even from the power of sin. And we have your promise of our future deliverance into your presence because you tell us all these great truths, all these great doctrines, all these great measures of spiritual balm on our wounded hearts and soul for your glory, for our joy and for our equipping for this battle. And we pray, Lord God, that even as there are any here this morning or listening or watching or even later that aren't trusting in you, Lord Jesus, alone by faith alone. We pray, Lord God, that you would draw them to yourself. And we know that you use your word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Lord, we pray that you would adopt them into your family, that they would repent of their sin and trust in you. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray all these things. And all your children say, amen.